This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. If you'd please turn in your Bibles first to Genesis chapter 19. You're looking at a couple passages, but our main focus today will be Genesis 19, verses 1 through 13. So I will read that first. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet, that you may rise early and go on your way. They said, No, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly, so they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter, surrounded the house. When they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them carnally. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See, now I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, Stand back. And they said, This one came in to stay here. And he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whoever you have in the city, take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Please hold your place there and turn over to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 1. And I will be reading there from verses 18 through the end of the chapter, verse 32. Romans 1, 18 through 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, 
even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, all the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They're whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word today, I pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive it, Prepare our minds to understand it and to put it into practice in the world around us. Most of all, I pray even in this text, which reveals to us great horror and darkness and the power and the curse of sin, that even in it we would see the hope that only comes through our Lord and Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. In our day, people like to downplay and mitigate the sinfulness of sin. It becomes undesirable. It becomes somewhat forbidden in polite society to speak truthfully about what sin against God's law does to people, to families, to society, and the world at large. We live in an age that is dominated by liberalism not just merely the political liberalism, but theological liberalism and the things that proceed from that, and libertarianism and libertinism that so emphasize human freedom to the point where the prevailing ethical rule of our culture is that people can basically do whatever they want as long as it doesn't seem to hurt anybody else. People doing whatever they want is only an acceptable norm that only works insofar as the people of a society want to do what is good. 
what is true, what is virtuous, and what is beautiful. Our nation was founded on the values of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness in that order. You must be alive to be free, and you must be free to pursue happiness, at least that's how we might think it goes. Of course, this nation was also founded on the idea that a people within it would have a shared morality. Particularly, it was founded on a Christian morality. You can dispute to what extent the founders of America were actually Christian, but at the very least, they shared that moral framework, that which is from, Christ, from Christianity, that which is found in Scripture. Now, when America was founded, the Westminster Standards, our confessional standards, were revised. They were revised away from an establishmentarian position with a state church towards a more pluralistic position, recognizing the different kinds of Christians that made up this country, though Christianity still being predominant. So you can look at chapter 23 and other parts of the Westminster Confession, and you'll no longer see things like the civil magistrate tasked with suppressing blasphemy or the government having the ability to call synods and councils of the church. But what you do still see is a particular duty of the people of a nation to be Christian because all people are called to be Christian. It is the only true religion, the only true way of salvation. And then you also see a particular duty of the government to protect the true religion and govern according to what is good and evil by God's standards. This doesn't go away. This was the design for America, and it was also what the church in America embraced. But that was a long time ago. Particularly in the last century, this pluralism among different kinds of Christians with a generally shared worldview and set of morals gave way to secular pluralism, where the public square is not predominantly just different kinds of Christians living and working together, but every kind of false belief and unbelief has to have an equal and even privileged set or seat at the table. The opportunity to push their morality and vision for society. We have seen in the history of America the rise of cults like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and Christian science and Scientology and We've even seen growth in Eastern religions, Buddhism, Hinduism. We've seen Islam get a greater foothold. We've seen the return of paganism and, of course, the rise in popularity of atheism. So when the faith that once held society together is lost and fractured, that means that the shared morality, which also held society together, becomes shattered, it becomes relativized, it becomes ignored, and it becomes abandoned. We see Romans 1, 18-32 play out in real time. People begin to suppress the knowledge of God, and they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They won't glorify God or give Him thanks. They're given over to every kind of sin, every kind of evil imaginable, including and particularly sexual perversions. Romans 1 contains the most explicit biblical condemnation of both male and female homosexuality in the Bible, even more so than the Old Testament texts on the subject. But this is not a sermon about America or Western civilization, at least not directly. 
There certainly is a pattern that we see playing out in our society, but it is a much older pattern. It was not long ago in this series in Genesis that we were in Genesis chapter 9, where the global flood was the means that God wiped out all rebellion against him that had taken, among other things, a form of sexual perversion. There it was the intermarriage of God's people with other people, which themselves, which made God's people become rebellious and become apostate. And the situation was so dire that only one family, Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives, would be left on the earth after the flood. But there would be one family who at least visibly, and them being the entire population of the earth, they knew the true God in the ways they ought to live. And yet immediately after the flood, we saw once again the separation between the city of God and the city of man. We remember Ham, the son of Noah, he sinned against his father by uncovering and mocking his nakedness. And so he and his descendants were cast out. Evil once again began to multiply in the world. One of the most prevailing false ideologies of our age is that of progress, that things are constantly getting better, that humanity is learning and growing and getting better every day in every way. There are some ways we improve. We have technology and medicine and things like that that generally we, we know more than we used to, with notable exceptions. But what we see in Scripture and what we see playing out in the history of the world is a situation that is not so much progressive, but cyclical. Nations rise and fall. A shared biblical and godly moral vision produces strength and courage and virtue for a time, but then it eventually gives away to decline and decay and chaos until others come to take up that biblical moral vision again. What we see in our text today, talking about Sodom, is a microcosm of that reality. We're not in Genesis that far, generationally removed from the flood, and yet such great wickedness is seen again on the earth that God must intervene and pour out his judgment upon it and silence it and stop it. This judgment falls on the cities of the plain, upon Sodom and Gomorrah and those around them. Now this is, of course, where Lot, whom we have talked about before, a man of faith but of bad choices, has chosen to dwell. Now God has been merciful on Sodom and withheld his judgment for a time. But that time is up. We'll be looking at this judgment on Sodom in two messages, and in the first today, we will see the depth of Sodom's depravity and the resulting judgment declared against it in the first 13 verses of chapter 19. We'll look at it in three points. First, we see a coming in verses 1 through 3. The angelic visitors who previously came to Abraham now come to Sodom, and they are taken into the house of Lot. Second, we see chaos in verses 4 through 9. We see an uprising in Sodom of some of the greatest and most horrific evil imaginable. And then third, we see a command in verses 10 through 13. God decrees to pour out his judgment 
and Lot and those with him must prepare. So again, we have a coming, chaos, and command. So first we look at the coming in verses 1 through 3. So last week, we remember that Abraham was visited and blessed by three men who were not merely man. One was God, even the pre-incarnate Christ, who restated the covenantal blessings to Abraham and reminded him and Sarah that they were going to have another son who would carry the covenant forward. But after that, there was also a discussion between God and Abraham about Sodom and what was about to happen there. God intended to visit Sodom in judgment. And Abraham, not wanting to see the righteous perish with the wicked, lowered the bar for saving Sodom all the way to ten people. If ten of the faithful could be found in Sodom, no judgment would come. And we see then that the two angels continue their journey on to Sodom, and then in the opening of chapter 19, our text today, they arrive there. And we see that when they arrive there, Lot was sitting at the gate. Now, why was Lot sitting at the gate? There are various theories offered, but one important fact about city gates in the ancient world is that that was often the place where the civil business of the city took place. It's where trade happened. It's where the uh, council, the political meetings of the city would be held. You can see, for instance, in the book of Ruth in chapter 4, Boaz goes to the city gate to meet the other relative and convene the city elders so that he can take Ruth as his wife. So Richard Belcher, he comments on this passage that Lot's presence at the gate points to Lot not only living in Sodom, but he seems to have actually become an important part of the city's life. We see other signs of this. In verse 7, he calls the wicked mob of Sodom when it breaks out his brethren. He knows them. They're his friends. They're like brothers to him. We later find out that his daughters were pledged to be married to men of the city. Now remember that Lot is a believer. Lot is a righteous man. This is not in doubt. It's confirmed for us, for instance, in 2 Peter 2.7. Lot was a righteous man. He was tormented by the things around him in Sodom. So it would seem that the best explanation for Lot's position at this point is although he believes in the true God and worships him, he has become a little too close, a little too comfortable with the city and its wickedness, and this is going to have catastrophic implications for him and his family. Now when Lot sees these men, these two angels, he may not yet know that they are angels, but he does as Abraham did before. He offers them hospitality. He bows to the ground. He asks them to come into his house. Now the angels initially decline his request. They say they will spend the night in the open town square. Now, under normal conditions in a typical ancient city, that would be fine to do, and it would be safe, and it would be reasonable. Because although you're still camping outside, you're at least within the walls of the city, so invaders and animals wouldn't be able to come in, so you'd still be relatively safe. And then if you did that, you wouldn't have to be an imposition on anyone else or sleeping in a stranger's house. Now, in a certain sense, though, their declining Lot's request is to test and expose Lot's knowledge and priorities. 
Lot knows what happens to men who camp outside in Sodom at night. And so he insists so strongly that these visitors come in, stay in his house. He's trying to keep them safe. He knows the sins of Sodom. He doesn't participate in them. In fact, he is, again, trying to protect these visitors from them. But he has been living in the city, going about his business, all the while being fully aware of the great wickedness around him. Now the visitors, they do agree to come to Lot's house, and as with Abraham, they share a meal. They have a feast. Now they also eat unleavened bread. This is significant that they eat unleavened bread. Unleavened bread becomes a prominent feature, an important symbol with the Passover in Exodus. They made and ate and took unleavened bread because it was all that they had time to do because they were going to have to leave. They were going to flee from Egypt. It seems here there is some foreshadowing as Lot and his family will soon have to flee Sodom. But after the coming of the visitors, we get to our second point, the chaos in verses 4 through 9. Like I said before, Lot knows what happens to men who visit Sodom at night. And in verses 4 and 5, we see that despite Lot's best efforts to protect them, to hide them away, he's not able to stop what's coming. We see that it comes time for bed, it comes time to lay down. And we see that a mob forms outside of Lot's house. Based on the language we see here, it seems to be a mob of all of the men of the city, young and old, near and far, all of them save those in Lot's house. Though Lot tried to hide these guests, word got out and it got around quickly. And the men of Sodom have come with a purpose. They want to know these men. I don't intend to be graphic, but they intend to rape them, to sodomize them. This is where that term gets its name. They want to have homosexual relations with them. That is what the men of Sodom, seemingly all of the men of Sodom, have come to do. Young and old alike, unrestrained, burning in perverse lust, seeking to do this to these men who came. Now Lot tries to reason with them. He goes outside, shuts the door behind him, puts himself in great danger even, and he tries to talk the mob down. But in his desperation to stop this wickedness, he offers something nearly as wicked and evil as an alternative. He is willing to offer his own two daughters to the mob for them to do with as they please. What an awful scene. What a horrific situation. <coughs> there are so many layers of evil and vile wickedness going on in this text. It is often difficult to even get our minds around all the layers, all the, the different problems here. Sodom is so given over to its wicked homosexual lust that Lot sees it as a fitting substitute to completely abandon his family and parental responsibilities, to completely neglect to protect his daughters, to offer them up instead. What do you think of a man like that? 
What do you think of a place like that where it seems the least terrible outcome is to hand over one's own daughters to such horror? Well, the offer is not taken. The men are set on knowing a man, and if they can't have Lot's guests, they will have Lot himself, and they will do to him and worse. And they rebuke him. But what they say in this rebuke is very important. They say, this one came in to stay here. Lot has come. He's become a part of the city. And he keeps acting as judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So what is their complaint with Lot? Besides denying them what they want, he is judging them. He has called their preferred sin, sin. He has called their evil, evil. Look back in verse 7. That was where Lot broke the camel's back. That was where he ran afoul the men of Sodom when he said, please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. He called what they were doing wicked. Their response, don't you judge us. Who are you to judge us? And so because he has judged them, they intend to violate and destroy him. Does any of this sound familiar to you at all? It is the month of June. I did not plan to be at this text in the month of June. But the month of June has become in our society an annual ritual known as Pride Month. In Pride Month... Uh, particularly, I mean, this is happening all the year round now, but especially in Pride Month, we see the government, we see companies, other organizations, insisting on celebrating sins that would have been very much at home in Sodom. We know the letters. It started with LGBT. They keep adding to it. Um, they even always include a plus sign at the end to get any they might have forgotten. But we see all of these various sexual perversions, all these denials of God's created order lumped together and praised and celebrated and commended for a whole month in our society. Again, Pride Month, it exists to celebrate these things. And it celebrates them calling it Pride which is, of course, a sin. Pride goes before destruction. And what's the worst thing that you can do, especially in Pride Month, but at any time in the year as it pertains to these sins? You can call it sin. You can call it evil. And you'll get the same response that Lot got. Don't you judge us. Who are you to judge us? Well, Jesus told you not to judge, right? That is exactly the world in which we live. In far too many ways than we ought to be comfortable, it is a world like Sodom. And all of it comes back to the same sin, the same core problem. It is the one sketched out for us in Romans 1, as we read, the one on display in Sodom. The denial of God, within that, the denial of his created order, the suppression of truth and unrighteousness, the searing of consciences, and the end, 
which is moral chaos, and particularly in these matters related to sex and sexuality. Many try to hide it. There are many so-called affirming Christian teachers, and they'll try to say things like, well, the sin in Sodom for which they were judged, it wasn't really the homosexuality. It was, it was the rape. It was that these men didn't want this to happen. Homosexuality itself is not bad, but the rape is bad. Or some even try to say the problem's not the homosexuality, but it's the lack of hospitality. It's not. All of this is a package deal. All of the sin runs together. And its core, by this point, its most obvious expression is in the homosexuality. And this goes all the way back to Genesis 1. God created man, male and female, so that they might marry and live in a one flesh union. And any break from this is a rejection of God's created order and by extension, a rejection of all of God's authority. And these sins, which are very clearly sins, clearly violations of God's will and word, they are not only perceived as neutral in our culture, but they are celebrated. They are seen as some of the highest values, some of the most important things to protect in our culture and in our politics and in society. We are demanded and expected to affirm and to celebrate and even to practice these things which are a rejection of God's authority and a sinful abomination in his sight. We even see now, you can go to government buildings, you'll see them flying the pride flag, the rainbow with the triangles and stuff. Now it's changing all the time too, but uh, it has conquered our government. It has conquered our nation. Those who rule over us, this is the world they want. This is the world they demand. And you and your children and your grandchildren are being pressured and will be pressured at every turn in schools, in jobs, in the government to abandon calling evil what God has called evil. You can see, for instance, various laws in this country trying to ban what they call conversion therapy which is really just to ban saying that those who engage in these sins can repent of them and refrain from them and return to living according to God's will. We see attempts to infiltrate schools uh, with literature and with propaganda promoting these sexual perversions, even to the youngest of children, and to get them to celebrate and embrace these sins. We see Pride Month. We're in Pride Month. We see these symbols like the rainbow flag, these actions like this near-sacred value that's placed on coming out and embracing one of these lifestyles. They become something of symbols and sacraments of a pseudo-religion. But it's our state religion now. Again, you see it flying off the White House in our other government buildings. And if you resist... If you refuse to go along, the world will try to make you pay. We'll try to see you fired, exposed, canceled, and silenced. And you and yours must be ready. You must have courage. You must pray for the grace of the Holy Spirit to stand in the hour of trial because we are living in a society that is way closer to Sodom than it is to the city of God.
And just as this world would seek to make Christians pay for standing on God's word, the men of Sodom were ready to make Lot pay for his judging them. But that's not going to happen. That brings us to our final point. After the coming and the chaos, we come to a command in verses 10 through 13. The men of Sodom, they try to seize Lot, but in verse 10, these angels in his house intervene. They pull Lot back into the house and they shut the door. And then in verse 11, they strike the men of the city blind. They supernaturally intervene and save Lot and protect him. And yet look at what happens after the men of Sodom are so burning with their lust and so given over to their sin that even once they're blind, they don't immediately stop trying. They don't immediately stop looking. They're still trying to find the door. That's how deep the sin runs. That's how deep the corruption runs. But eventually, finally, they stop. You would think that being blinded, being physically blinded, would be a sign that maybe whatever you're doing, you need to stop doing. But not here. They wanted one thing and one thing only, and they would not stop until they had it. And this ignoring of physical blindness reveals the depths of spiritual blindness. They're so given over to sin. They're so captive and bound to sin that they will pursue it at all costs, whatever consequences might intervene. But in verse 12, after the mob finally breaks apart, we shift back to the inside of the house where Lot's been pulled by the two angels. They ask Lot who is with him in the city. Remember from the negotiations with Abraham last time that ten righteous souls and judgment would be called off. But no ten are going to be found. The angels command Lot that any who are with him must leave because God is going to destroy the city. In fact, as we have seen and may continue to see, there may in fact only be one righteous soul left in Sodom, and he is watching his world, his city, his life, and his family collapse around him. And we'll see the conclusion next time, their escape and where that all leads. But what we must reflect upon here today is that for this great unrestrained wickedness of the city, God has purposed its destruction. On this earth, in this age, God poured out his judgment on Sodom's sin. And Lot's crime in Sodom was to judge them rightly, was to judge them correctly against the standard of God's created and moral order. For that, Sodom wanted to destroy him. But God has already rendered his judgment on Sodom, and God's judgment cannot be bullied into silence and submission. Sodom's sins are known. They've already been known. God has withheld the hand of judgment for a time. In fact, it seems these sins of Sodom were nothing new. They'd been going on for long enough that they were normal. All the men of the city except Lot were practicing them and were rejecting any attempts to stop them. In times and places where wickedness is practiced on a wide scale, where wickedness is predominant, God will often stay his hand for a time. 
He leaves time for his people to be brought into safety. Though the world is evil and though its ways are passing away, God comes to redeem a people from out of this present evil age, and he will not lose any of his own. God, who does not delight in the death of the wicked, will even allow the wicked for a time to partake of the blessings of common grace, the good things of this life, undeserving and ill-deserving as they are. But it is clear here that all the people that God might rescue out of Sodom have already come. The time for repentance has passed. The time for judgment comes. God will judge the city. In Sodom, we see a microcosm of this world. We recognize sin. We recognize very similar sin and its consequences in the world around us. We even see demands that we must bow to the new order, the new pseudo-religion that demands and celebrates these sins. For now, God has stayed his hand of judgment. Our world generally, for all the world, is fallen and sinful, but even in particular ways, our society deserve God's wrath and judgment to be poured out for its many gross sins. But the God who is just is also merciful. Though we live in a place that is in many ways like Sodom, we live in it as a part of the city of God, the communion of saints, the fellowship of the faithful. God yet has many in this city who believe and proclaim and hear his word. Christ has sheep who still hear his voice, and he will preserve them to eternal life can come here about that this evening. And so though we face the struggles of living in a land under and deserving of judgment, we can do so with eternal perspective and eternal hope. Now God's hand of judgment will not be stayed forever. Even if God does not pour out particular judgments on this land, in this age, all of the world will someday be subject to judgment on the day of the Lord. And we don't know when that day's coming. It could be a few thousand more years. It could be tomorrow. And because judgment is real, and it is coming, and it is certain, we must be prepared. Perhaps you hear this talk of judgment and you are frightened. You are wondering how you might be delivered. Well, friend, your way of deliverance is the same, of, is the same as Lot's. The salvation that only comes through the true knowledge of the true God. God sent his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to this broken and rebellious and sinful world. He lived the perfect sinless life that no other person ever has. He kept God's law on our behalf. He fulfilled all righteousness. And he suffered and he died as a once for all perfect sacrifice for the sins of his people. As we read earlier, he became our sin so that we might have his righteousness. We might be accounted as righteous and we might be delivered out of this present evil age into the presence of God. Christ calls his people out of Sodom, out of sin, out of this world and its coming judgment to repent of their sins, reject them, turn from them, and believe in him. 
believe on his perfect work. Those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ receive forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. Though this world will end, though this world will face its judgment, there will be a new world, a new heavens and a new earth where Christ's people will live in blessedness, free from the sin and its curse and its power. And what a glorious day that will be. But until we are there, we are in a battle. We are in warfare. A war not fought with weapons and armies against earthly powers, but a spiritual war. The sins of Sodom did not end with Sodom. We see them all around us. The sort of rebellion against God and hatred of his word and rejection of his created order that made Sodom what it was remains on the earth and will remain until Christ returns. Our call as God's people in such a world is to remain faithful at any cost. We may suffer loss. We may suffer rejection, humiliation, hatred, slander, accusation, persecution, and all the other evils that may proceed. We may be called in this age to share in the sufferings of Christ for standing upon his truth. Maybe you are here today and you relate too closely to the sins of this age. You know people that have been snared by them. Have the hope and have the confidence that Jesus Christ is Lord even in Sodom. He can and he does snatch people out of those sins, out of any kinds of sins, into his salvation. Continue to tell the truth. Do not be afraid. Do not accept the lies that loving a person requires confirming them in their sin and delusion. Speak the truth in love, but speak love in the truth. Grounded in what love really is, in God's will and God's law. Speak the gospel, the only way of hope and salvation through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Because apart from this, there is no hope for anyone from any sin, whatever it may be. That is what our calling is in this world. And we can do these things. We can live like this because we know what's at the end of the book. We know where we are going. We have eternal hope in our Savior. And we know the only hope that any have in this world is through the gospel of Jesus Christ by which sinners of all kinds are pardoned and made new. And so we can share this gospel, we can take it into the world, and we can live faithful lives and resist evil in the world, knowing that in the end victory is ours, because the victory belongs to our Lord. Let us pray. Father, we recognize in your word difficult things, hard things, things that uh, we see working out in the world around us, perhaps even the sins of our own minds and our own hearts and our own actions. We recognize that for these sins, judgment must come, but we also see that you have made a way of deliverance through Jesus Christ, whose perfect righteousness is offered in place of our righteousness. I pray that all here gathered would believe this gospel, 
hope in this gospel. And because of the hope in this gospel, resist evil, even as it is so pervasive and present in the world. And I pray that as these sins go forth, I pray your restraining hand would be on this world, that though we seem so far down the path of sin, that you would turn back our nation, turn back our world towards your righteousness, that justice would be done, uh, even in this age, even on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.